And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another live edition. Yes, we're live tonight on the other side of midnight. That that really magical time. And I probably have to stop using that because when I say magical, people think I'm talking about, you know, woo-woo stuff or something maybe hyperdimensional. And what I'm talking about is that we're really going to be talking about it tonight. This is a unique time in any measure of time. This is a unique time in history, a unique time in the chronicles of Earth, a unique time in the physics itself, which uh, in the third hour we may get into because we're going to have my primary guest tonight is a citizen historian. We've had many citizen scientists but I thought I would do a change up tonight, and we have a citizen historian with us, uh, Marvin D. Jones, not to be confused with any famous football players. I want to make that notice. But we're going to be joined in the third hour with, by Georgia Lambert because our conversation is going to grade from historical to metaphysically historical. And if you wonder what, what does he mean by that, well, you'll have to hang around till the third hour, and hopefully then it will become clear. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, and I know we're picking up uh, new listeners all the time. Uh, my old radio friend, uh, um, Fred London, used to term the, this the uh, frogs in the wheelbarrow problem. People leaping in and leaping out, and you can't really keep track. So we have a lot of new listeners, and for you who do not know kind of how this show works, we have a section called Radio with Pictures. And what we do is we post items, images, links, um, quotes, anything that guests think would add to the kind of full experience of uh, listening to them for three hours. And, of course, given that a lot of people uh, do not have uh, the proclivities to listen or, or rather watch the website live, for those who are members of Club 19.5, remember, all of our shows are archived in the club and for a very modest subscription, which is really trivial. I think it's about 33 tetrahedral cents per day. You can uh, have an infinite experience of listening to any archive show for however long as you want. You go back, you listen again. I mean, some of these shows are very, very, very dense in that we have a lot of information packed into three hours. So uh, that's a kind of a, kind of a, you know, heads up for what may happen tonight because we're going to be talking about a lot of specifics. And if names or references or websites go by you, you can pick them up, of course, if you're a member of the club, Club 19.5, which is really pretty trivial when it comes to today's information stream, because we try to present you with things that you get nowhere else. I mean, I really mean that. You can hear things on this show that you can literally hear nowhere else. And it's going to become increasingly so as we move into what I'm calling, and this isn't a euphemism, we're moving into what I call the end game. Remember, I have been chasing NASA, our friendly local neighborhood space agency, for almost half a century, trying to get them to come clean and own up to what is surrounding us in the solar system, beginning with the moon, moving on to Mars, the satellites of Jupiter, um, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the whole outer solar system, 
up to and including this bizarre object that the New Horizons spacecraft flew by after it made its encounter with Pluto back in uh, summer 2015. And of course, spotted in glorious color all these ancient, incredibly ruined, vast mega engineering arcologies, many of them broken open to the airless skies, although the Pluto skies are not really airless. There is an atmosphere. It's mostly nitrogen. Now, that's interesting. And it created that incredible blue background of forward scattered light when the New Horizons spacecraft, after the flyby, kind of turned around, looked back, and took this incredible color image of the night side of Pluto, which, remember, is about half the size of our own moon and yet for a long time was classified as a planet, as the ninth planet. Um, that's a long discussion, but I still think because of historical reasons, it still should be classified as one of the original nine planets pre-space age, but that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, um, when the spacecraft looked back, it photographed this incredible blue ring around Pluto, which of course is the atmosphere, the air, the Plutonian atmosphere, which waxes and wanes with the seasons because Pluto does have seasons, even though it takes forever, 248 years to go around the sun once. In fact, we're coming up, if we already have not passed it, on the Pluto return, meaning it is now back in space relative to the galaxy where it was when Clyde Tombo in 1930 uh, first discovered it. Anyway, um, Pluto has an atmosphere, even though it's not breathable. You will die if you try to breathe pure nitrogen because we need oxygen. And on Earth, we have about 20% oxygen and about 78% nitrogen. And the rest of it is those trace elements, trace molecules like CO2 and carbon monoxide, a little width of argon, and a few other things, but most of it is nitrogen and oxygen, and Pluto is nitrogen, but without the oxygen, which, of course, raises the interesting question, where did the nitrogen come from? Did Pluto formally have a breathable atmosphere with oxygen? Is that what the folks in those huge, ancient, ruined arcologies used to... Uh, experience when they went outside all questions that we cannot answer tonight nor should we try because we have more important things much closer to home to answer so long peroration for you who are new to the other side of midnight what you want to do is click on tonight's banner which says rather dramatically a republic madam if you can keep it which is a direct quote from benjamin franklin at the uh, summer constitutional convention in the summer of 1787 and we even know the name of the woman who asked the question she was there but of course because of uh, gender bias back in the era of the revolution women were not allowed to formally participate but she did everything with the convention except actually deliberate among the other delegates so we know who it was we know the context of her question and it is a question and an answer which is ringing down through the ages. Over 246 years later, we are still asking this question. Do we have a republic? And if so, how 
do we keep it? And that, of course, is going to be the central focus of our uh, conversation tonight. I'll have a few more words to say in a moment, but I want to, the other side of midnight, banner, click on that. That will take you to the guest page for Marvin D. Jones tonight. And right under that banner on the top of the guest page, you will see uh, where it says fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you down to my section of radio with pictures. And as usual, we're going to open tonight with some news stories. Um, the NASA hierarchy involved in the Artemis One return mission with a human-rated spacecraft to the moon, which will occur in the next uh, couple of years, kicks off in less than a month now. I think it's 24 days and counting, because on August 29th, this incredible rocket, the most powerful NASA rocket since the Saturn V, the SLS, the Space Launch System Vehicle, will loft the Orion spacecraft and the European service module into an orbit that will eventually, a couple hours after launch, result in a trans-lunar injection, a rocket burn which will take that spacecraft, the Orion command module and the European service module, back to the vicinity of the moon for the first time that a human-rated spacecraft has gone back to the moon since 1972. And this is obviously the beginning of a very interesting sequence of events. This is what I call the end game because this unmanned mission, which will be launched on a 42-day duration mission, which includes some very interesting looping orbits of the moon, taking it tens of thousands of miles away and then back within like 60 uh, miles of the surface. This is a prelude to a second crewed mission, meaning it will carry a human crew of uh, four astronauts that will take place according to current planning. And if this unmanned test flight uh, works, they will do that um, uh, in 20. 24, I believe, and then in 2025, there will be an Artemis, Artemis mission number three, which will carry four astronauts down to the surface of the moon for the first time since Apollo in 1972. Now, why am I all excited about Artemis one? Because it's unmanned and it's just robotic and they're just kind of testing systems. Well, the answer lies in what the Artemis one spacecraft carries which is lots and lots of live video streaming HD, incredible resolution color cameras that will photograph the hell out of the moon and the Orion spacecraft and the Earth in the background and all kinds of other things um, beginning at the end of the month. Uh, and as we get closer, I will describe the details of the mission. But if you want to have a real good preview if you click on that link tonight, that is a YouTube video that NASA posted a couple of days ago of the August 5th briefing yesterday by all the high mucky mucks at NASA headquarters, uh, the mission manager and the program manager and the launch manager and uh, some of the bureaucracy from, from NASA itself, describing the overview, the outlines of the Artemis One mission. So if you want to save your self from you know letting your fingers do the walking through various google questions 
and you want to go directly to an overview from the folks who are managing the mission, that is a good way to spend about an hour, hour and a half uh, with some very good questions from the members of the press following, including my old friend Bill Harwood, who of course is the space reporter now, only only one left from the era of you know, Cronkite's um, sojourn at NASA, at uh, NASA, at CBS, where I worked for him all those years ago as part of the original Project Apollo. Well, Bill Harwood is the only member left of that generation. Good questions. And his question of these assembled experts was really good. And you will hear it if you click on the video. And that will give you an overview. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm putting together a really important backgrounder, like I did with Webb, on what this mission is going to reveal, really, about the moon. And it's a lot more than NASA has been telling you. In fact, there are other missions that are heading to the moon tonight uh, that are going to give us really intriguing answers. As you know, a few weeks ago, an unmanned uh, microwave-sized spacecraft called the Capstone Mission was launched toward the moon on a very leisurely orbit. It will take it uh, from now till November 13th to get into lunar orbit in this very strange rectilinear uh, what they call a halo orbit, which will mimic precisely the orbit of the planned lunar gateway uh, lunar space station, which will be in place around the moon before the Artemis three mission flies. So the crew will go from Earth orbit to lunar orbit rendezvous with the gateway mission, which will be in a polar orbit. And then from there, they will descend in a lander that Elon Musk is building under contract to NASA for the descent from lunar orbit to the lunar surface part of the mission. That will all unfold in the next couple, three years. But tonight, another unmanned mission is joining the uh, capstone mission en route to the moon. A couple of days ago, the Koreans launched an almost 1,500-pound unmanned lunar spacecraft, their first lunar spacecraft with their developing and, and maturing uh, unmanned space technology. Uh, it carries a bunch of instruments, the most important to our discussion being the 33-pound, 33, 33 pounds, not an accident. Remember, NASA can't do anything without a ritual. So 33 Masonic tetrahedral pounds of a camera called the shadow cam. And, I mean, this really, I, I should have a sound effect here, but I don't, so I will have to do it myself. Remember that old-time radio show, Only the Shadow Knows? The Shadow. And then he would come on and laugh and go, The Shadow Knows. Ha, 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 ha. Anyway, this shadow cam, which is built by Mike Malin, one of the senior uh, sensors at NASA in charge of unmanned spacecraft cameras who takes a million pictures and only shows us two or three with nothing incriminating. Well, Malin built of Malin Space Science Systems in Southern California, Malin built the 33-pound shadow camera for the South Korean unmanned mission. And why am I focusing on this? Well, besides the weird pun, what the shadow cam is supposed to do with an extraordinary technological advance, making it hundreds of times more sensitive than any 
digital camera that NASA has ever flown to the environs of the moon before, as it's supposed to do literally what its name implies. Uh, given that the Artemis three mission is going to be the first to land literally at the moon's south pole, where all the volatiles are stored in coal traps, including water and all kinds of other crucially essential molecules, um, the Artemis mission is going to go to the South Pole as the first landing since 72 to begin emplacement of a full-time lunar moon base, kind of like Moon Base Alpha, except on not being on the far side, it will be on the south hemisphere of the moon located relatively close to the South Pole because of the availability of frozen water and frozen CO2 and frozen lots of other very important and essential molecules that are not only critical for breathing and rocket fuel, but for manufacturing stuff. They call it in situ resource utilization, another wonderful NASA acronym, um, in situ. Anyway, um, the Artemis III mission can only make it there if it has the gateway lunar um, space station successfully orbiting the moon that it can rendezvous with because that's where they will leave the Orion uh, ESA service module spacecraft docked to the gateway and they will enter Elon Musk's dedicated lunar lander which will go from the gateway to the lunar surface and without the Artemis without the uh, gateway mission none of this can take place so the gateway mission is critical the gateway mission cannot proceed into this very unusual orbit to act as a way station from lunar orbit to the lunar surface unless the capstone mission succeeds and the capstone mission as you know right after launch kind of disappeared for a day or so before they were able to get it back all of which of course we're going to talk about in some detail tomorrow night because the guest that I had planned live for tomorrow night, who was going to talk to us finally about how do we know what we know, had a medical issue come up. No, it's not COVID. It has something to do with the fact that uh, he's no longer a spring chicken. And so his doctors recommended that he not stay up in the middle of the night and we could not arrange to be taped. So we will have to defer his appearance on the other side for uh, at least two or three weeks. Uh, but I will let you know when he is rescheduled. So tomorrow night, we're going to replay my show of a couple weeks ago titled, Is Someone Blackmailing NASA? With a lot of very specific information. And um, it's so interesting because one of the items that I mentioned on the show in some detail is the fact that the SpaceX uh, Crew 5 that are supposed to leave from Earth uh, in August and rendezvous with the space station, replacing crew four on a Falcon 9 and in a Dragon spacecraft built, of course, by Musk. Uh, they had to delay their flight to replace the astronauts from crew four because their Falcon 9 en route <clears throat> to testing in Texas hit a bridge. I kid you not, the driver drove into a bridge with a whole Falcon 9 on a trailer behind him. And I asked all kinds of questions, which you'll hear again tomorrow night, as to how this could have happened. What's so interesting is, even though the subject in this Artemis briefing came up 
briefly, nobody explained. In fact, nobody even asked of the press corps, how the hell did your driver hit a bridge? Because these routes are carefully plotted out. They're surveyed. Every overpass is measured. You do not want to drive a, you know, 14-foot-high uh, trailer with a, with a rocket in it under a 13-foot-tall bridge. That is not done, except in this case, it was done. And yet no reporter asked the obvious question, how did this guy, this idiot, mess up? Was he on something? Was he drinking? Did he have a six-pack on the, on the seat next to him? Uh, how, do you, how do you drive a million-buck rocket plus into a bridge on a route that you've driven hundreds and hundreds of times before? No one asked the question. It's amazing the number of questions of government that are not being asked, which, of course, is a kind of a subtle segue into our discussion tonight with uh, Marvin Jones. Item number three, um, the James Webb Telescope is continuing to return absolutely stunning, awesome, amazing, never-seen-before images. And so if you click on that link, you will see a backgrounder from the web people as to how they're going to take new data, the time frame on which that data will be made available to the public, several clickable websites where you can see images that the press doesn't go ooh and ah over so they get don't get replicated. This is the original source. These are links directly to the James Webb Space Telescope team, uh, including uh, where the original image of the Cartwheel Galaxy is, which is our featured image in the web uh, item tonight. Because the mainstream explanation, and I don't have time to go into details on this tonight, but I will in a future program, the mainstream explanation for this stunning view, I mean, this object is called about half a billion light years away, 500 million light years out, and you can see all over the image a whole bunch of galaxies that are much, much, much further away. But this one is called the Cartwheel Galaxy. It's been known for decades from Earth-based astronomy. Of course, the best image up till now was taken by Hubble, but because there's so much gas and dust in the system, all those stars in the spokes of the cartwheel that you can incredibly clearly see on the web image are hardly visible on the um, uh, Hubble image, which of course is contained within the link if you go to that uh, James Webb link. And the conventional mainstream astrophysical explanation is, of course, that this galaxy, among many millions out there, uh, you know, suffered a random hit from another nearby galaxy. And because there is so much empty space between stars and galaxies, they literally pass through each other like air blowing through air. And the stars don't collide or even directly interact uh, in close-up but the gravitational fields do interact, and that changes the orbits of all the stars in both galaxies after the collision is over. And, of course, collisions can be sideswipes. They can be head-on. They can be any angle. They can be edge-on. You know, there's no rule that says the galaxy has to hit the center of the other galaxy uh, like, a, like a bullseye, except in, the, in this case, the mainstream astrophysicists say that's what happened, and that's why we have this extraordinary uh, evenly spaced set of spokes, curved spokes caused by the rotation, the differential rotation of the uh, 
galaxy stars around the center after the collision, hundreds of millions of years after the collision. Now, I look at this, and given the fact that several months ago, I showed this audience a stunning image of a square galaxy, I kid you not, a galaxy where the edges turn right angles, go around, right angles, round, right angle, right, a square galaxy with a central core. Um, And I postulated very seriously that this may be evidence of one of Kardashev's type three civilizations. Remember the Kardashev scale, where you have successive scales for civilizations that can control more and more and more energy? Well, type three on the Kardashev scale is a, a civilization which can literally control the energy of galaxies, meaning, of course, it has to be hyperdimensional control of the torsion field. And so when I look at the cartwheel, given that I've already shown you a an impossible square galaxy, I mean, how do the stars make, make the turns? What causes them to go at right angles to their previous orbit? I think we're looking in the cartwheel and in the previous square galaxy, my name for it, uh, the evidence of Kardashev's type three civilizations. And the more you look at that exquisite web image, remember, a telescope now 100 times, if not larger, than its capabilities than, than, than Hubble, 100 times. I mean, in physics way back when, when I was learning physics, uh, I had a physics teacher, Mr. Mulak. If any of his children are listening, hats off to Mr. Mulak. As he said, one afternoon as we were you know, learning physics in high school, the way you do, he said, in physics, nothing really matters except orders of magnitude. What's an order of magnitude? It's a factor of 10. So Webb is 100 times two orders of magnitude more powerful than Hubble. Imagine what we're going to see and learn and understand, which will obviously change our society. And that's another whole discussion, which we've had in the past, and we will have again. Item number four. Uh, number four is really important because we passed literally just a, a day ago, yesterday, the exact 10th anniversary, 10 years to the day, yesterday evening, for when the Curiosity nuclear-powered car-sized rover successfully landed in Gale Crater on the planet Mars. And we've got all kinds of amazing things that over the last 10 years, Curiosity has shown us, has proven scientifically, not the least of which is organic molecules on Mars. And before you all jump up and down and say, oh, oh, organics, life, life. No, the mainstream guys are being really, 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 really conservative in pointing out that there are two ways to get organic molecules. One is by means of um, life. The other is through abiotic means, meaning natural chemistry. Well, um, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, the Perseverance rover, the successor of Curiosity, landing at a totally different place on Mars, actually confirmed the presence of carbon-13 molecules, which is the indication of abiotic um, creation, compared to the ratio with carbon-12, 
which is the uh, carbon isotope, which is indicative of biology. So that really opens the door to potential biology, ancient or maybe current biology on Mars. So uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is going to be uh, Marvin D. Jones. And what we're going to do, since we're going to be talking about the founders, the inhabitants of Boston and Virginia and the rest of the colonies and the American Revolution grading into the great American experiment, this constitutional republic, we're going to be playing some music as part of our bumpers tonight from the revolution. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, Marvin D. Jones, when we return. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, August 6th, one day after the 10th anniversary of the Curiosity landing on the planet Mars and ushering in the Martian Revolution, which, among other things, now seems to have confirmed uh, to all except the real holdouts, the detection of actual biological organic molecules on Mars. And that, of course, opens up extraordinary, extraordinary possibilities. My guest tonight is uh, Marvin Jones, Marvin D. Jones, not to be confused with the uh, famous football player. So without further ado, let me give you some background. Marvin is kind of an experiment tonight. Many, many years ago, when Art was telling me that I should do this show, oh, that he ducked out before I had a chance to tell him what I thought of his wonderful idea, um, he warned me, he said there are two that I should never, ever, ever, never, never, ever, ever talk about on my show. One was religion, <clears throat> and the other was politics. 
So, of course, over the years, I have uh, neatly ignored Art and his recommendations, and I have wandered in, you know, angels go where fools fear to tread or vice versa. Um, And I have tackled several times political discussions. Well, tonight we're going to have a big, big picture political discussion because, frankly, the republic is in serious jeopardy. And rather than waste time telling you my thoughts, I will bring on Marvin and we will have a very spirited conversation regarding uh, his research and his deep background. Because Marvin is one of those uh, history junkies, people that love history as much as I love science or the, you know, how science works, how we figure things out. And he is extraordinarily well versed. He is kind of, and, and when I said this to him He was kind of surprised because I said, Marvin, I want you on not an academic expert because I want to sample what thinking was back at the time of revolution where a well-rounded man, a well-rounded citizen, remember they wouldn't let women vote or even, you know, participate, um, had to be a generalist. He had to know a lot of things about a lot of things, including history. So Marvin kind of... uh, uh, it you know encapsulates the idea that to be a functioning, thinking voter, a citizen of the United States of America, of the Republic these days, you better learn some damn history because most of what's out there, both by design and by stupidity, is wrong. Marvin had two family members who were great, uh, greatly influential on Marvin's life. His great aunt, who was born in 1882, told him about King David and King Solomon. She also taught him about the presidents. His mother always offered encouragement regarding his studies, and she made it clear that leaders make a difference. Both taught him about the Holocaust while still in single digits. His fourth and fifth grade teacher made history come alive for Marvin. He helped students understand how to look at things like those who were there. Then came much later President Kennedy, who offered a history lesson to Marvin in real time. Marvin, like I did, watched his press conferences, State of the Union addresses, and other speeches, but JFK's decision to go to the moon on the basis of 15 minutes worth of space flight experience captured his imagination. In fact, it still does. Reading, listening to historians, journalists, politicians has now become a habit. It cannot be broken. Marvin comes from a family that has served in every branch of the armed forces, although they are predominantly army, as was he. Because American involvement in Vietnam was winding down, Marvin was sent to what was then West Germany. Upon return to the States, he finished what he began overseas at the University of Maryland University College, and received a bachelor received rather a bachelor's degree in government. Among other things, remember he's a generalist, Marvin has worked in a junkyard, had a research firm doing work for the United States government, and on litigation support projects as a document analyst, a member of the cleanup crew, and a team leader. His last job was in Massachusetts Veterans Services, which was through a federal grant. He is now retired lives in western Massachusetts, uh, I guess not far from Springfield, and his lifelong history, interest in history, continues. Marvin Jones, 
Come on down. <laughs> Hi, Richard. How are you? Well, after that bio, I've got to ask you, what was your feelings when you saw all the Republicans who had voted yes to this incredible veterans bill that will finally uh, give the, the, these veterans going all the way back to ancient orange in Vietnam in, in crucial, essential medical relief up to now, including the burn pits. What did you think when 22 of these guys switched their votes just out of spite, preventing incredibly crucial health care from reaching veterans for at least another week? Disgust. Utter disgust. And why do you think they would think this is in their political interest? What have we become as a society where their supporters, their voters, the people who vote Republican regardless in every election, literally can watch them, you know, grinding their heel into the faces of veterans, people who have given the last full measure of devotion up to and including now incredibly debilitating cancers, and they literally gave them the finger? Well, it just goes to show how far we have gotten away from what the founders intended. And there is a line from the Knox report. Uh, I guess I need to explain what that was. Uh, President Washington had Secretary of of War Henry Knox uh, send a report to Congress in support of, in, in modern language, universal national service. And what was interesting about that report is toward the end of it, this is what it says. Therefore, it ought to be a permanent rule that those who in youth decline or refuse to subject themselves to the course of military education established by the laws should be considered as unworthy of public trust or public honors and be excluded therefrom accordingly. So when I see these politicians prance around doing a tough guy shtick and talking about how uh, they are more American than now, my mind constantly goes back to the beginning because General Washington was commander-in-chief of the Continental Forces. He was in the field the entire time of the war with his troops. Uh, 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 Henry Knox had been an artillery officer in the Continental Army. Okay? So that is what come, comes to mind. And I appreciate more and more why President Washington had Secretary of War Knox in that report to Congress, because it was just so thoughtful that there should be a connection between the leaders and the citizens. These guys now are just out of touch with reality. It it is just almost beyond belief that they would not provide support to those who do the country's dirty work. Well, to me, growing up, you know, during the the Korean War, and then uh, I was born at the very end of World War II, of course. 
um, mm-hmm. the Korean War, Vietnam, um, the idea that we would literally castigate veterans who we used to revere and we would now literally vote against their health care on the basis of, oh, we got snookered because uh, the, the Democratic uh, uh, leader of the Senate outfoxed the Republican leader and it was just a vote for spite. I mean, see, these politicians can't maintain that posture unless their constituencies, unless their voters go along with it. So what's happened to, quote, Americans that a third of the population is okay with this insanity? Because they, like those gentlemen who voted against the, the Veterans Health Bill, they no longer serve. Richard, when you, when you and I grew up, I'm sure you knew a number of people in your neighborhood who had served in the armed forces, just like I did. Just right now talking to you, instantaneously, various faces popping in my mind of people up and down the street, guys that I played uh, uh, football, baseball with, uh, fathers or uncles, cousins, and so on, who served. And now that is very unusual. When when I was working out of out of uh, outside of the Commonwealth at, at a college, uh, one uh, co-ed that, that worked with me at, at my uh, my nighttime uh, job uh, there, she told me that I was the only veteran that she knew, and hmm. that to me is part is part of the problem that there is no longer that common experience and see that's why i read that uh a portion from the knox report because that was was part of what the former uh, man who by that time was a former commander-in-chief of continental forces wanted to be a part of the country where people would have this connection uh, as i said before the leaders uh with the, the citizens and then even the citizens interacting uh, uh, with each other, and people would have knowledge of something beyond themselves. One of the uh, wonderful experiences uh, of having family members who served in the armed forces, uh, one member who had, had uh, uh, been in the, well, he was in, on active duty in the Air Force, and I never will forget when he took me along and this, this was during the Cold War, when he took me along uh, a flight line of B-52s. And it, it was just, it just filled me with awe, right? Because there's something, there's a big difference between hearing about something and seeing it in the newspaper or on television and actually seeing it. And then, of course, when I was on act, active duty, uh, actually being around uh, the power of our uh, country on a daily basis. And I found it uh, uh, humbling. Hmm. Well, there is no – see, everyone can't have the same experience. And even at the height of the draft, you know, in in the wars uh, the United States has participated in, a relatively small fraction of the population – actually went to war. I think Mm -hmm. there's something much deeper 
I, 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 and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I'm looking. One of the things I wanted to ask you is how far have we drifted from the idea of Franklin when the woman asked him, and I keep forgetting her name, I think her first name. Uh, it, it was uh, e- Eliza uh, uh, Powell. Powell yes, with Powell, one L. Powell. Yeah, I was thinking of a, mm-hmm. of a you know famous general. Um, but mm-hmm. we we know mm-hmm. her name. We know it's real. It's not an urban legend. And and he said, you know, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. What happened to that idea of citizens keeping the most precious gift we ever get from our ancestors, which is a democratic republic? Nothing is higher. Nothing. Not even life itself, because life in servitude is not life. So this experiment, something has happened at the core of the experiment, and I don't think we can explain it simply because most people do not serve. Most people have never served, but something else has changed. Do you have any ideas what? Part of it, obviously, it has to be related to education. Uh, A teacher uh, was telling me how Civics is no longer taught in a lot lot of schools, which is just absolutely astonishing that there cannot be an American republic without education. And I also think, Richard, that there is a, a, a tendency because we have been uh, blessed for, for the United States of America to exist for 246 years, and there's a tendency for – but republics are rare. In, in preparation for the, uh, the, the Federal Convention or, or other people call it the Constitutional Convention, James Madison gathered together the – constitutions of the ancient republics to see where where they succeeded and why and and, and where they failed and why mm. and one of the the uh, 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 qualities that a republic ha- has to have to exist is uh, a virtue right and from my this is my my point meaning point meaning Church. good good men and women inclined toward service to society as opposed to service to self right 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 and in order for there to be virtue again this is this is just now my my point of view uh there has to be courage one absolutely has to be have courage and then one cannot have courage without character. And my definition of character came about because of uh, some remarks I I was asked uh, to make. This is, oh my God, this has been nearly two decades ago about uh, Washington. Uh, It was around the time of of his his birthday. And I always go back to refresh my, my memory and so on. But the definition that I came up for courage is uh, excuse me for character. Character is the union of thought, word, and deed directed toward a noble end. Hmm. Well, I think, and there's a politician these days on everyone's mind. You see her on television all the time, Liz Cheney, 
uh, as she was developing her political, you know, stance and obviously taking a lot from her, her, her father, Dick Cheney, former vice president. When I, when I look at her policies and how she's voted, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on anything, anything up to and including her, her, her position on, uh, you know, women's right to own their own bodies. But in this whole pursuit a violation at the most fundamental level of the Constitution, I would vote for her for president in a second if she ran because character and courage and virtue must be rewarded. And I would rely on the constitutional checks and balances of two opposing parties to kind of trust that not many or even all or, or, or any of, of her policy proposals would actually come into law but the fact that she has shown such such vision and character and continuity with the founders means that in a crunch when something really mattered liz cheney as president would determine the right course of action based on principle and not on expediency and that seems to be something we've lost in almost every other Republican race and district and, and representative. Agreed. Okay. Let, let, let me go back in time, okay? The mm-hmm. republic we now have is something that would be almost unrecognizable to the founders. Let's start by limbing out the vision. What was the vision of these men, these incredibly flawed men that were able to rise above their own personal limitations almost to the level of of a supreme miracle when you look back what was the thing that set them apart to create this extraordinary experiment which although it's in trouble it's still got incredible fight and i think we're going to ultimately win well um the, the the founders were uh, children of the Enlightenment, and one thing that stood out to me when I read uh, Madison's notes that he took at, at the convention was one, one word that really just came to mind was thoughtfulness, because you 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 read and and you see how they considered a particular uh, proposal and it was debated back back and forth and they they may have taken a preliminary uh, vote on it and they still were not sure and said okay we'll we'll come back to that later and they would take up other other things and they, they really made an extraordinary effort to study uh, history to as i, as I said uh, uh james madison gathered together the constitutions of the ancient republics and that was not just a, ca- a case with him i'm mentioning him because he's considered the father of of the constitution and when you read the uh federalist papers you see how uh say, whether it was Madison or uh, Hamilton, they, they wrote the vast majority of, of the Well, of since papers, a lot of uh, people don't read history anymore, 
what were or what are the Federalist Papers? Oh, the uh, Federalist Papers were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. And they are considered the commentaries on the, on the Constitution. They were uh, written because, of course, after the Constitution uh, had been written at the convention, it then had to be uh, ratified uh, by uh, nine of the 13 uh, states to go into effect. And one of the most critical uh, states was going to be New York. But uh, the, the things that were written about had uh, a broader a application beyond uh, just uh, getting, getting ratified because to this day, uh, the Supreme Court quotes from the, uh, the Federalist Papers. Hmm. So these were letters that these guys exchanged back in a time when no phones, getting from town to town was on horseback or stagecoach, mm -hmm. and you had members of the Constitutional Convention, representatives from the states scattered all over the colonies. So these dialogues took a long time, months and months, to send letters to have people think at the other end, no instant you know, typing, no uh, sending you know, email to the wrong people, like happened to Alex Jones the other day. Was that really an accident? <laughs> anyway, um, just a little, you know, side note there. Just too timed, too perfectly timed. Really, come on. So long periods of time where you could think and consider and reflect and, and cogitate on a letter that came in before you had to respond. And so these were deep reflections on the impact and implications of all of the various uh, moving parts of this document called the Constitution, right? Yes, yes. As I said, they, they were written by uh, Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, uh, Madison and, and, and Jay, uh, predominantly by Madison and Hamilton. And they were written under the pseudonym of Publius, right? And they appeared uh, in, in the uh, newspaper, of course, that was there was no broadcast press, as you said, at, at the time. So these were commentaries. So um, how did how? One thing I've always wondered were were the were the were the ten amendments to the Constitution? Did they come out of these dialogues, or were they part of someone's bright idea during the convention? The uh, the ten amendments or the, the Bill of Rights came uh, after the uh, convention. Uh, in the process of uh, the efforts to get the co Constitution ratified uh, at uh, the various uh, state conventions, uh, a, a, a number of uh, the delegates to those state ratifying conventions wanted to uh, have a, a, a Bill of Rights. So ultimately, uh, Essentially, a, 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 a promise was made that if the Constitution was ratified, uh, there would be a, a Bill of Rights added. And so uh, James Madison got to work on that um, to the, uh, the first House of Representatives. 
one interesting thing, uh, though, uh, one interesting thing, though, in checking my memory here, in uh, Federalist Paper number 84, Alexander Hamilton uh, addressed this matter of a Bill of Rights. And what he says is rather interesting because he, he he points out to those who said that the Constitution, as it came out of the convention, did not contain a Bill of Rights. He reminded people that a Bill of Rights had been something that was required under a monarchy. Because remember, think back to um, King John and the nobles who uh, approached him and ultimately uh, – he signed the Magna Carta, and then subsequently there were various other things that led up to the uh, the, the English uh, Bill of Rights. So anyway, in number uh, 84, Hamilton uh, pointed out that a bill, of, a bill of Rights was something that would be necessary, a monarchy, okay? Mm-hmm. And that under our system, again, uh, you quoted uh, Mr., uh, Dr. Franklin, we have a republic, and Hamilton says that if you just read the preamble, that he, and he uh, uh, quoted uh, saying, we the people of the United States, and uh, of course he did not go through the whole thing, but he said, we the people of the United States uh, ordain and establish this constitution, referring to the, uh, what, uh, oh, I know, we the people of the United States uh, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And I'm going through all of all all of uh, that because now we have people saying, "Oh, well, if you did not uh, write down uh, every single thing that it might be possible to do, then." You do not have a right to, to do that. Mm. Okay, hold it there. And the, okay. We're, we're at the top of the hour. This is called the Liberty Song, written during the Revolution. Kind of appropriate for our guest tonight, who is Marvin D. Jones, a citizen historian, with, as you can tell, a ready accessibility at his fingertips of all kinds of little arcana from this time period. I'm going to ask a really dumb question when we come back. But I won't tell you what it is now. You will have to wait. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Oh, we're worthy for fathers that give them a cheer. Who climb at unknown, be courageously still. Through oceans, to deserts, for freedom they came. And dying, bequeath us their freedom and fame. In freedom, we're... The Other Side of Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits.
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, August 6, 2022. My guest this morning is Marvin Jones, citizen historian, who has so much information, obviously, at his fingertips, who has been as obsessed with history as I am with science and astrophysics. Um, I mean, I have a little bit of historical interest. I, I do know kind of my way around and some of the Constitution, but obviously not to the degree that Marvin does. Marvin, let me ask you a really dumb question, because the Bill of Rights always struck me as kind of like uh, almost like an afterthought. And given the criticality of the First Amendment, we've seen over the last five years how crucial and essential a free and competing press is to finding out anything from the arcane bowels of government these days. How come the founders kind of went, whoops, oh, we need to guarantee freedom of religion, the press, assembly. I mean, why wasn't this like number one when writing the Constitution? Well, again, as I was saying, in number 84 of the Federalist Papers, uh, Hamilton uh, uh, talks about how you already already have those uh, uh, rights. Uh, our our writing them writing them down is unnecessary. That this 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 was uh, what he said in number number eighty four. Yeah, but wait wait wait, wait 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 wait. If you're writing a constitution and you don't codify something, somebody at some other time can say, well, that's not included. I mean, weren't these guys bright enough? That's a that's a dumb question. To know that they had to write everything down. Hold on a second. There's the passage that I want to okay. see if I can I can find it. Yeah, because after we talk about the First Amendment, I'm going to really put you in a corner. I'm going to ask, as a member of the Army of the U.S. Armed Forces, the real utility of the Second Amendment. Because when I look at history, my perception is the United States is an extraordinary experiment, except for the inclusion of poison pills that ultimately could completely derail and destroy the Republic. One was the Electoral College, which is, as we see, how Trump sneaked in, and number two, because of gerrymandering, and number two, the Second Amendment, which has become this onerous, extraordinarily non-commonsensical intrusion on civil liberty, because frankly, the more kids that get their hands on AK-47s or AR-15s, the less free and the less safe we are. And the founders could never have imagined in their rational minds that that would ever come to pass. So how do we wind up 
with the Second Amendment. Well, let's, let us tackle the First Amendment first. How come it looks like to an outsider like me, learning this in school many decades ago, like, oh, these are afterthoughts. Why weren't they originally put in writing? Well, again, it's just a, a difference in how things were looked at then. So, hang on, hang on. So the let, assumption... Let, so, let, let me... Get, may I read this uh, okay, uh, to okay. you, Go what ahead. Hamilton wrote? Okay. Uh, now, these are the exact words as, as opposed to my just uh, giving you paraphrasing. Now, I'm quoting him. It has been several times truly remarked that bills of rights are, in their origin, stipulations between kings and their subjects, abridgments of prerogative in favor of privilege, reservations of rights not surrendered to the prince. Such was Magna Carta obtained by the barons, sword in hand from King John. Right? And he, he goes on in that regard, talks about the petition of right and, and so on and how ultimately uh, it led up to the uh, English Bill of Rights. And then going on, contrasting a monarchy with a republic, he says, here, in strictness, the people surrender nothing. And as they retain everything, they have no need of particular reservations. Hmm. We, the people of the United States, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Here is a better recognition of popular rights than volumes of those aphorisms which make the principal figure in several of our uh, state bills of rights and uh, which would sound much better in a treatise of ethics than in a constitution of government. So he was eventually outvoted. Somebody had the brains to say, if we don't write it down, some future despot is going to take it away. Well, again, this was just a, a, a complete difference in how things were were, were, were looked at. Uh, and he was explaining that, that point of view, right, that you, you need these uh, things, that, as we have seen, as I just quoted, because that, – uh, of, of what happened with uh, 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 King John, <laughs> right? And Richard, uh, let me read one other thing that he said on because you were asking about the First Amendment, and, and this specifically, he's talking about the press. This is, again, Alexander Hamilton. And he says, on the subject of the liberty of the press, as much as has been said, I cannot forbear adding a remark or two. In the first place, I observe that there is not a syllable concerning it in the Constitution of this state. He's referring to New York. In the next, I contend that whatever has been said about it in that or any other state amounts to nothing. What signifies a declaration that the liberty of the press shall be invaluably preserved? What is the liberty of the press? Who can give it any definition which would not leave the utmost latitude for evasion. I hold it to be impractical. And from this, I infer that its security, whatever fine declarations may be inserted in any constitution respecting uh, it, must altogether 
depend on public opinion and on the general spirit of the people and the government. And here, after all, as is intimated upon another occasion, must we seek for the only solid basis of all our rights. Well, his opinion must have been in the minority because we did get the Bill of Rights voted in. So, oh, 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 yes. I'm, I'm just giving you a, a, a background but about you, but, how. But you also say this was part of a common wisdom of the period. How do you square that with the fact that he was a minority opinion? Somebody, thank goodness, the majority said no. Alexander, Alex, you got to write this stuff down. Yeah, that, as I said, that is what happened because of what was going on at the uh, state conventions to ratify. Uh, I, I'm just pointing out how it, it appeared point of view, and I'm, I am emphasizing this is now. This is Marvin D. Jones speaking <laughs> speaking now. I, I, I am emphasizing that because now we have people in our country who are. Uh, judges who say that, oh, unless this specific thing was written down, you cannot have such and such a right, right? Right. And I, I am thinking uh, specifically of, about uh, the, the recent Dobbs, rule, Dobbs ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. Right. Okay. Because... Hamilton's concern was actually recognized in the Bill of Rights. Uh, the uh, Ninth Amendment uh, talks about how, uh, okay, the, 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 just because we, we've written down a, a certain uh, a, a, a certain uh, uh, that, that the enumeration of, of certain rights, right? That, does not mean that people do, do not have other rights that, that every single thing that could be possibly imagined has not been written down. Right. So in that sense, uh, Hamilton's concern was recognized. And for me, that is why, again, this is, this is my, my, my view, it is why the, uh, the Dodge ruling is just nonsense. Well, that's a whole separate discussion on the Supreme Court, which we may at some point have. I want to go back to the Bill of Rights, because again, yeah. as, as, as a kid learning this, I thought, well, wait a minute, if these are so important, why didn't they think of it at the get-go? Why did it have to come later? And was it because in the ratification process, when the Constitution went back to the states and they were subjected to local editorials and speakers and guys on soapboxes and the way news was promulgated in, in town halls in those days. It kind of dawned on a lot of people that certain things were not enumerated, were not written down. Yes, that, that is what happened. And that was brought up at uh, the state ratifying conventions, and it was why – uh, ultimately, Madison. All right. As soon as we get uh, the Constitution passed, uh, sit down and, and compose the, uh, the, the Bill of Rights. So the yeah. grassroots, this this bottom-up democracy, this bottom-up representation of citizens, really was the wellspring 
of the thing that makes our Constitution unique and, as we've just seen over the last half decade, really workable compared to just, oh, it's kind of out there in the ether and we all kind of know it and assume it, but it isn't codified. Yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way. Okay, let's go to the Second Amendment, because to me, the Second Amendment is going to be the death of the United States, because it's unbridled. I mean, where in the Constitution is it written down in the Second Amendment that the average citizen has the right to own and bear a tactical nuke? Or going back to the 30s, a Thompson machine gun. In other words, the Second Amendment, like any of the Constitution, is not limitless. There are limits. But when it comes to talking with gun owners or gun rights, you know, obsessives or whatever, I found that their most irrational any limitations is around the Second Amendment. And it's like, well, who ordered this? Well, I refer to uh, what you just described as the imaginary uh, amendment of the NRA and the GOP. They, again, first of all, I have to go back to the Federalist Papers. In number 29, again, Alexander Hamilton, he goes into a, a great detail explaining what a well-regulated militia is. And it, it is not every Tom, Dick, and Harry, as you alluded to, uh, running around with fire. Initially, a well-regulated militia is under the control of a governor, and then ultimately, it is under the control of the President of the United States, when, when, uh, to use a constitutional language, when called into the actual service of the United States. And just so everyone in the audience understands, the militia is the National Guard. And the, the, the name, the National Guard, uh, was just given in, in 1903. What was it called? Oh, what, what were they? Because obviously it was state-centered. What were they called? What were the state militias called before 1903? The, the, the militia. Say, the state uh, militia, the, okay. Yeah, the Tennessee militia, the Michigan militia, so on. Yeah. Got it. Got yeah, it. but now it's just called the National Guard. So that... That is the militia. And to give you an idea of how, well, I know you, you know this, how off track everything has gotten, uh, Chief Justice Warrenberg, well, actually, he was former Chief Justice Warrenberg because he, he had uh, uh, retired from the court. Uh, he was interviewed on the McNeil Lair report. This was in December of 1991. And he said, I, I'm quoting him now, the Second Amendment has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud. Oh, I've, I repeat I've seen, the I've, word fraud I've seen on this. the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. I've seen this video. It's available on YouTube. This was an interview that he did on McNeil Lear probably, what, 30 right. years ago? Yeah, it was December 1991. Okay. Yeah. 
So why didn't anybody listen to Warren Berger? Well, because what we what we have now is a system where certain people can get on the airwaves and repeat certain things over and over again. And these assertions are heard and people start to, because, because they're, they're just repeated endlessly, people start to think that they are the truth. And, and, and they're just not only false, my God, they are flagrantly false. Now, one of the reasons uh, why that has happened, and I'm, I'm speaking, uh, well, this will be perfectly obvious, speaking about the uh, broadcast press, one of the reasons why things have gotten so lopsided with people being able to be on the airways and just assertion and repetition is because uh, 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 Reagan, President Reagan, got rid of the fairness doctrine. Oh, that's right. That's right. Right. Forget right. people with no historical memories. Describe the fairness doctrine. Well, it, that was just a, a provision uh, where if, if someone went on the airwaves and this is through the FCC. said something, yep. right through the federal FCC, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, which, which right, license, and, and which, said something on, was... Hang on, hang on. Which licenses... All broadcast media doesn't affect the Internet. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. But it used to affect mm -hmm. going back to, I think, 1934, when the FCC was established, that you had to have opposing points of view equally represented right. in any public broadcast discussion. Right. 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 So right. how did Reagan kill it? Um. I'm, I'm trying to remember how it happened uh, originally. I, I think that it just had to be with the people that he appointed uh, to the FCC. And then uh, later, uh, I know that uh, the Democrats uh, had, a, had a, a, a bill to uh, keep the uh, fairness doctrine, and Reagan vetoed it, and it, it, the veto could not be overridden. Ah. Right? And uh, let, let me give the audience an example of the fairness doctrine in, in, in operation, a historical example, not a distant one that we'll be talking about, a relatively recent one. Back in about, I think it's, this was about 1967, uh, NBC, uh, was it? Yeah, NBC News did a uh, white paper on the investigation that uh, – New Orleans uh, District Attorney Jim Garrison was doing on the assassination of President Kennedy. Okay. And this, the, 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 you remember, Richard, these white papers were done in prime time. They would last sometimes an hour or two and sometimes be uh, on consecutive nights, depending on the volume of material they were covering. Yeah, CBS has so, the equivalent. They call them CBS reports, since I'm an alum of CBS News, I remember that. Charles Carroll, right. a brilliant one on Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. So NBC had right. these white papers, and I think John Chancellor mm -hmm. was primarily the uh, anchor on those, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, 
uh, Garrison, uh, the, the uh, uh, district attorney of New Orleans, he took exception to something that was said during the NBC News white paper. He made a formal complaint to the FCC, and the FCC told NBC News that they had to give uh, uh, Garrison time to respond in prime time uh, to that portion of their report, and Garrison did so. So I, I know I've told uh, some younger people, uh, just like you, you had to put, put out uh, certain things, uh, to your audience, uh, I have told some younger people, imagine if the, the fairness doctrine still existed or say a modified version of the uh, fairness doctrine existed and say a certain news organization, I'm trying not to get you in trouble here, Richard, but a <laughs> certain, certain uh, news organization that is named after an animal that uh, we have to stand guard over the chicken coops to make sure that this particular <laughs> creature does not get in there. Okay. Right. But ju just imagine if the fairness doctrine were still in effect. Oh my God. It and, would be night and, and day. people could, and people could go to the FCC, make a formal complaint about something that was said. Can you imagine how those formal complaints would stack up where finally the FCC would say, whoa, time out here. What, why, why do you have a, a, a license again? Well, back to when he was first elected, remember how Trump kept saying he was going to take away the broadcast rights of networks, NBC, CNN, all that. And no one reminded him that those rights are conferred not on the network, but on the individual affiliates. They're the people that have to answer to the FCC in terms of federal regulations for broadcast on a limited spectrum. So I would think, you know, we're going to get probably later in the show to ideas for how we can fix certain things that are radically wrong. We need to bring back, certainly in the era of the Internet, the fairness doctrine. Amen. So how do we do that? And why isn't anybody except Marvin D. Jones talking about it on an international radio program at uh, 11 o'clock, uh, 1130 here in the uh, land of enchantment. Well, Richard, I think part of the problem is that uh, Democrats have a, a tendency to not focus on key things. Um, I, will, I will tell you a story that illustrates it because it's something that Yours truly did. Back in 2005, I was my small town's uh, delegate to the Massachusetts Democratic uh, Convention. We were not nominating by this was just an issues convention. And I, I stood up at one forum and said, uh, I, my intention is not to insult anyone here, but our office holders have a tendency to be too timid. The Republicans will get in the back room and they will discuss among themselves what they're going to do. And when they come out, they are marching in lockstep. Now, they will be marching in lockstep talking uh, nonsense, right? But they are all uh, uh, singing from the, 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 the same music. 
Oh, my grandmother singing from the same hymnal. Yes, yes. Right, right, right. And 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 Democrats have a, have a tendency to argue a, 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 among the among themselves in a, a public as opposed to <laughs> no. Let's let, let's get together and figure out what what is something that that we all support and we go out and, and do that. And one of the, the things that they desperately need to support is a, a fairness. A, a doctrine, restoration, and enhancement, right? But that would happen. We have to have a Democratic Senate with, with a, 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 a clear uh, majority, not this thing that always hangs in the balance for, for key issues. Just like the, I guess the debate is still going on on the. Uh, yeah, as we're uh, having uh, this the, conversation, the, there's another conversation going on tonight in Washington. The midnight mm-hmm. oil, as they say, is being burned. There's a special mm-hmm. session of the Senate where the so-called mm-hmm. voterama on this uh, reconciliation bill, the, the uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in Inflation Reduction Act, is being debated with endless amendments by Republicans, mostly, and, and Democrats. And they're, they're actually arguing on C-SPAN right now, don't, don't turn the dial, uh, on, all these, all, on all these amendments, which is an example on C-SPAN of democracy in action. Absolute democracy. Mm-hmm. So given that everybody is wondering, and I'm going to say it right out loud, why we've allowed Fox to basically take over the First Amendment and, and pour poison into the veins of a third or maybe almost a half of the country day and night, 24-7, without rebuttal, without counterpoint, where they can even refuse to cover something as historic as a House committee looking into the insurrection – why isn't anybody saying, for God's sake, we got to bring back the the, uh, the fairness doctrine and make it apply to the internet as well? Who are the vested interests that are keeping that from even being discussed? Vested interests? I'm not going to. Well, again, I'll just put it this way: for me, the the, the problem is a lack of focus on the part of the Democrats, right? It would, it would be in not just the country's interest, it would be in their interest uh, since uh, they are so maligned by that certain uh, network, but it, it would be in, in the country's interest to have, as I said, a, a, a fairness doctrine, uh, an enhanced and, uh, a fairness doctrine put into effect. But it's going to take uh, a, a Senate that has a, a clear Democratic majority, uh, a continued Democratic majority in the um, House of Representatives, and then, of course, the, the uh, president would uh, – I'm sure. I'm sure President Biden would sign it, but it would be in 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 the country's interest to have it. Well, more and than the country's hopefully, interest. Hopefully, maybe tonight, uh, uh, the people in your audience will, when their uh, senators, after this long debate on on the president's bill this evening or this morning, uh, will say to them. You, you need to introduce a, a, a fairness doctrine, enhan- a restoration and enhancement act, you know, and do the same thing it, it, it's mm-hmm. almost, to their representatives. It's almost like shades and echoes of the whole concept of the Bill of Rights, like things that are so obvious that no one thinks they should be codified. 
maybe the Democrats just assume, which a lot of people apparently back during the revolution did until the founders turned it back to the people. And the people said, wait a minute, you forgot some important stuff. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Marvin D. Jones, citizen historian, who has all kinds of really juicy, interesting tidbits at his fingertips. I'm feeling very good about inviting a citizen historian on the other side of midnight tonight, and you have not seen or heard anything yet. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. In the background, music from the revolutionary period. At least these guys know how to play a flute. We shall return. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, about half an hour to go until this grades seamlessly here in the land of enchantment into uh, Sunday morning. My guest this morning is citizen historian Marvin Jones, Marvin D. Jones, um, and we're talking about the founding of this republic and things that are so obvious that even in the original drafting of the Constitution, until they had feedback from citizens, uh, that's you guys out there, they forgot to include crucial, important, major things. And one of the founders even said these are things that are so obvious and so important that they don't need to be limited by language. Luckily, Hamilton was voted down. So um, let me go back to this idea that in the coming election, if we're all lucky enough to have the kind of democratic victories that I think we're all looking for, given that most of the Republicans are certifiably nuts. I mean, look what they did to the veterans the other day. Can anybody in their right mind, can, 
you know, kind of condone that or defend it or whatever. And I, I have a good friend, you know, someone I talk to a lot, um, who was trying to defend Senator Ted Cruz the other day. And he was extolling all the good things that Cruz has done. And I was kind of bringing up the fact that Cruz is is deficient in stunning ways, like, for instance, beating a, a very fast track out of town during the Texas power outage where 900 Texans died and Cruz took his whole family to Cancun because they'd lost power in their house and they wanted to go where it was warm. And I, I said, you know, kind of rhetorically, wasn't it part of Cruz's duty as a U.S. senator to lobby on behalf of getting the regulations for the Texas Power Authority changed so they could be part of the national grid so they would have power from other states like we do here in, in New Mexico when your local grid goes down, there's power sharing, and so the states all support each other. Texas is unique. Texas is a kingdom unto itself, and Cruz is supporting this independent Texas Power Authority, which wound up during the uh, cold snap uh, a year or so ago in basically killing almost a 1,000 Texans. He beat his way out of town. Well, there's another example, because after the veterans bill was voted down in the second vote, uh, which was, as I said, a recantation of the 22 Republican senators who had voted for it initially, there is video of Cruz and another senator on the Senate floor literally high-fiving the defeat of a bill to help desperately sick veterans. And if that isn't sick, I don't know what is. Now, in the, in the transformation of the Senate and the House, which I'm foreseeing now, based primarily on what happened in Kansas uh, this past week, if we do get clear majorities, should not someone, Marvin, be proposing a reinvigoration of the fairness doctrine, which seems to me philosophically go back to what was the underpinning foundation of the entire Constitution, which is you cannot have a democracy or a republic without checks and balances on power and without a fairness doctrine, Fox has had an overwhelming um, advantage in the so-called marketplace of ideas because they just bought their way into a third or maybe even a half of the American electorate who never get to hear an opposing point of view. Absolutely. That is, that is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Okay. Have you sent a note yet to one of your two senators there in Massachusetts, Senator Markey, and said, for God's sake, what are you guys thinking? We need a fairness doctrine upgraded. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've, said so, I've said so many things to uh, – yeah, yeah. I, I know at some point I, I've sent – among other things, I've sent that uh, to them. I know I have sent uh, uh, things also to the, uh, the speaker. Nancy Pelosi. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So given the amount of airtime that's been taken up railing against Fox, how come nobody in the chattering class, which is a derogatory term for the pundits and the commentators and the opinion makers and all that, the cable television, how come nobody has said, look, the solution is, you know, the silver bullet for this is reestablishment of a more um, toothful 
fairness doctrine. Nobody. You're the first person, Marvin, I've heard in the last five years that says, for God's sake, we need a fairness doctrine. How come? Richard, that is one of those things <laughs> that that is one of those things that caused me at times to talk back to the TV screen or the, the computer screen as the case may be, because that is one of those things that's just so obvious. It, it, and maybe it's just uh, maybe part of the problem is that we grew up at a time when there when there was a, a fairness doctrine and we we got to see it in effect usually it would be at the at the as you said the the local uh level but as, with the example I, I just gave we also got to see it at the national level right where well remember uh, remember it, tip remember tip o'neill you guy in your backyard when he was speaker of the house mm-hmm. all politics is local so why yeah. haven't why haven't local legislators and local press and local citizenry clamored for a reestablishment of the fairness doctrine given now that we've got decades showing what happens when it was not in place that is a good question richard and i'm i'm not sure that i have a good answer other other than given that i have a conspiratorial inclination somewhere in my dna I, I'm, I'm be- well, you've listened to me for a long time. I'm beginning to wonder if this is not a quiet conspiracy on both sides, because basically both sides are be- at some level are being paid off to such a degree that they don't want checks and balances. They don't want to have to answer opposition in an equal format. And there's been this unholy alliance, again, like the founders, as apart from the citizens when the constitution was sent back for ratification the people are never asked would you like it's never pushed in front of them that it's even an option because for god's sake reagan is like like the founders as far back in time for most you know young kids today as the founders Mm -hmm. and of course they think the founders are kind of irrelevant to their lives Yeah. yeah good point good point yeah we should make a list of things we'd like a new Congress to do after the midterms. And I think the, the fairness doctrine in an upgraded 21st century form should be at the top. Because if you don't have checks and balances in people spewing lies, look at Alex Jones. Look at the amount oh, of hundreds yes. of millions of dollars this guy is making and lying yes. every other breath, you know about how much money he doesn't have and how he's broke and how he's now bank poor. I mean, I was on Alex's show once. He never invited me back. I always found that very intriguing because I used to have, still have a major bullhorn, a major platform. Why wouldn't he want someone on his show, given that he's, quote, looking for truth, who was basically telling the truth about NASA? I was on once and never invited back. That, to me, was very, very telling about Alex Jones. Yeah, uh, well, what he spews is essentially propaganda. But he's unopposed forms like Fox because there's no fairness doctrine. 
Again, this seems to be an extraordinary oversight. And frankly, given that we're dealing with a lot of bright people, the fact that no one brings it up as saying that this could be the silver bullet, it wouldn't cure it, but it would certainly go a long way toward reinstating opposing points of view for a whole captive audience that all they do from morning till night is they have Fox on in the background. I know, because Robin, toward the end of her life, became so captivated by Fox that she wouldn't allow me to put any other news network on, on any television in a room where she was. She was locked oh into God. Fox. Huh. Wow. Yeah. The only antidote is there has to be in law that other sides must be represented. And, of course, it works both ways. If, in fact, of course. If in fact the government is producing a huge scam on COVID vaccines and all that, which, of course, is being claimed, if you had, by law, opposition enforced on CNN, on MSNBC, on CBS, on ABC, whatever, then people could make up their own decision because part of the checks and balances would be how do you evaluate sources? How do you trust what you're hearing? How do we, to go back to my guest who was supposed to be on tomorrow night, how do we know what we think we know? I mean, it seems so common sense. Yes. Wasn't there a guy back in the revolution named Payne who wrote a whole book called Common Sense, which changed history? Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, another another uh, common man doing extraordinary things, as, as you have pointed out. Yes. Okay, so um, the founders had a certain concept of the United States. We are obviously not just drifting, we're moving at warp nine in the wrong direction. Four senior elected uh, candidates for the, the Arizona Senate, the governorship, the secretary of state, and I forget, there's one other office. They're all avowed, absolute, obsessive religious deniers of the validity of the 2020 election despite all evidence to the contrary, including Trump's, you know, attorney general, um, his head of, 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 of election security, uh, Department of Homeland Security in terms of intellectual validity. of the, In other words, no amount of evidence is convincing these people who are basically playing. They're, 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 they're kowtowing to a small minority of their electorate because they think it will win them the election virtue or character or the constitution be damned the only antidote checks and balances in the first amendment and there is none at the moment yes yeah well again it goes back to absolutely have to have a uh, a fairness doctrine uh, restoration and enhancement act absolute necessity why was the Fairness Doctrine never incorporated as a uh, constitutional amendment? Like, I mean, I, I don't know how many we've got now. I think we're up to 25. 27. 20, 27. We, we're going, okay, 27. How come something so fundamental, so such a cornerstone, that opposition must be legitimized for any political opinion, how come that has never been encapsulated as an amendment? 
that I do not know. Um, it, it may just be that because it had existed since, uh, I, I guess it had been in existence since uh, FDR's Communication Act of 1935, and it existed on through, uh, well, in, into the uh, Reagan administration. So it, it, it might just be the fact that it had existed and as a, a rule and, and it was the way that things were done and now uh, with the necessity of it maybe somebody will uh, propose that though of course it'd be much easier to at least get something back in place through legislation first well you start there but it seems to me that if if the president could simply veto a um a uh you know congressional uh bill and take it out of the you know the FCC's purview there are a lot of other rights that we are seeing now can be taken away like the supreme court the other day with Dobbs took away for half a century women's rights to be equal human beings literally equal citizens women tonight are not equal because of the Supreme Court decision. So what do you think about the idea of expanding uh, the Supreme Court as a remedy for uh, for what's been going on there? Um, I'm trying to think of a way to give you a, a, a brief answer. I am, I am more, in, uh, well, I'll answer you that, that part of your question first, okay? I would I would be all right with the expansion of the uh, Supreme Court simply because first of all, right now that there are nine seats on the court, and originally, if my memory is correct, there were, when there were nine seats, was because there were nine courts of appeal. Well, now there are. Now there are 13 because each justice, say, if something happens in that particular jurisdiction uh, of a, a particular court, I feel it, it will go to particular justice uh, first. So on that basis alone, uh, it makes sense to expand the court to uh, 13. But beyond that, I think we have to get to the point where we – can I say this? Uh, we we get out out of of, of the habit of almost uh, uh, nominating and then confirming uh, Supreme Court justices simply on the basis that if someone has a, a, a law degree from such and such elite school or. or or such. I, I think it has to be far more than that, and, and certainly it has to be more than somebody belonging to the uh, federal society, or for that matter, for it, any other particular group. No, no, and see, the reason why I say that, and I, and I do not mean that to uh, criticize any one, uh, one thing. We just have to have a more comprehensive uh, approach to uh, the, the nomination and 
confirmation process because right now it seems to me that uh, not just uh, judges for the Supreme Court, but uh, judges in, in general, uh, they're almost treated as if they're going to be members of a cabinet. But uh, to approve someone as to be a member of a cabinet, fine. Obviously, the, the president, he, he or she wants someone who has his or her point of view. Well, that is fine for uh, someone in the cabinet. But in the court, it has to be different, and especially for the Supreme Court, it, it, ha- it has to be different. Um, well, hang on a second. These let t- me give you an example. Of, let me give you an example of, 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 of what what uh, that may clarify what what I'm I'm getting at here. Okay. Uh, John Marshall. He he is considered the uh, greatest uh, Chief Justice of the United States. And he served, I believe it was 34 years on the the court. And out of 1,129 cases that came before the court when John Marshall was a chief justice, out of 1,129 cases, 1,042 of those cases were unanimous. Now, this is with other justices being appointed by various presidents over the course of his 34-year tenure. That's an overwhelming percentage. Yes, it it is absolutely breathtaking. Now, the number number of justices on the court has varied by presidential administrations since the founding of the country. There's nothing sacrosanct or written in law about nine, or I'm, I'm sorry, in the Constitution. So the president, no, no. with the authorization of the Senate, could expand, and I presume the House would have to be involved in this well, as well, could expand right. the number to 13 to fit the various uh, appellate jurisdictions around the United States and do no violation right. to the Constitution, but actually return the court to something much more important, which is, again, checks and balances. Right, 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 right. So John Marshall and, presided over a court that was unanimous for most of his 34 years. That's, that's, in, that's impossible. Impossible these days. Right, right. How yeah, did he do but, it? But, how, did, how did it happen? Well, when I see something like that, it just simply comes down to as, as, as someone who is – open-minded because you, you have to be going around the table to, to listen to, to uh, uh, people and that has to be give and take. And have you ever looked at something uh, this way before? So we're, and, back, so we're back to the idea of thoughtful people in public service as opposed yes. to people with an agenda, people who really listened to the opposition, who listened to their fellow justices, who actually could change their mind and result in overwhelming unanimity from independent points of view. Well, Sam or Clyde or George, I guess you're Mm -hmm. right. And so that is why I said we have to get beyond just treating judges as if they're members of uh, a, a cabinet. And 
I, I wrote uh, well, I wrote a couple of articles about about this, and the way that I would like to see the the uh, whole process change, nominations and hearings regarding judges. That uh, there are certain uh, essential elements that, in my view, uh, uh, must be weighed. And again, we get beyond so and so got a law degree from this or that elite school, belongs to this or that club, country club, or did law review. We, we have to look at the, the institution itself, and, and I'm thinking in terms of Chief Justice John Marshall as an example. Look, look, at, look at the institution, what, what it is supposed to, uh, supposed to uh, uh, do, and then the individual. So the institution comes first, then look at the particular individual that is considered for uh, a nomination, let alone uh, actually submit it uh, to the Senate. But look at the institution, the individual, and then ideology ha- has to, to be considered. What you were saying about somebody coming with uh, uh, an agenda in mind, right? But let's look at somebody. Is, is, is this an individual who only sees things, is only capable of seeing something one way, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to uh, keep in mind that, okay, if you are going to be on uh, some type of, of appellate court, whether the United States Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, then you, you are, are not like a district judge by yourself going to rule on a case. You have to see how the, what, what is the interaction going to be between you, your, your ideology, and other individuals on this institution. Right. And then, of course, there has to be awareness of the image of the court because – Look at the low, uh, uh, the public, low esteem the, the public that the court is held in now. It, it used to be in the high 60s or 70s. It's now down to 25%. Let me ask right. you this. How can you have representative yes, government when the Supreme Court, which basically rules on the legislative viability and consistency with the Constitution, of the executive and the legislative branch, and I want to get to how that happened in a minute. When when the court decision, as with with the Roe or Dobbs, which was the actual current case, when it is mm-hmm. so at variance with ninety percent of the citizens of the country, and a right for the first time in anybody's memory is literally taken away, that's been em, em, emblazoned in the Constitution. For 50 years, there's something incredibly radically wrong because how could it have been so wrong for so long and then only predominance of one political ideology is the majority of the court? You just uh, said it. What happened, (laughs) what changed was the composition of the court, not not the public opinion, not scientific uh, uh, opinion, just the composition of, of the court. That is the the only thing that changed, and they have gone the the uh, uh, the, the justices on the court have gone so far out on a limb that we are at at the point now where. It may be necessary 
for uh, President of the United States to challenge them. And, and I'm not uh, talking about let's have a, 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 a duel, but I, I'm talking about an intellectual challenge because there are things that these people are saying that are demonstrably false. We were talking earlier about the uh, Second Amendment. They, they recently, uh, this was, I guess, a, a day or so before they, maybe a day or so before, a day after, uh, before they made the Dodds uh, ruling where there was uh, uh, a New York uh, gun uh safety statute oh, that yes, was yes, about yes, 100 yes, years right, old that had right. been overturned. And I, I believe it was Justice uh, Clarence Thomas that wrote that. And I, I started reading the decision. I had to put it down because it was just a fit. And it's the type of thing that you will understand this. It, it's like somebody t- uh, 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 telling you something in physics or celestial mechanics, and you just know that the guy is speaking nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading his, his decision, I said, oh, I, I cannot, because I, I, I was working on something else at the time, I said, I have to come back to this later. But to get back to the thrust of, of my point, I'll tell you what, they we're, have we're, gone we're, so, hang on, hang on, we're at the top of the hour. Oh, sorry. So nothing to be sorry about. This is long-form radio for a reason. <laughs> my guest is Marvin D. Jones this morning, citizen historian who, as you can tell, he knows his Constitution, and he knows his Federalist Papers, and he knows, I really think he knows where we went off the rails. And in the next hour, when we bring Georgia on, we're going to be talking about solutions. Because, frankly, I think there's more than mere expediency or money or um, uh, lobbying, whatever, going on, when both major parties, both so-called philosophical divisions of our society, Republicans and Democrats, both apparently agree, oh, there should be no fairness doctrine. That was a big mistake. Well, the big mistake is not calling it to public attention and basically saying it needs to be reinstated. You're on the other side of midnight. In the background, we have a Revolutionary War music from the period, kind of in keeping with uh, where we were, and we shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs 
9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And no, it's not July 4th. It's actually August 6th, a little over a month afterwards. I have as my guest tonight Marvin D. Jones. We're talking history, the founding of the Republic, the things that could be done to fix the things that have gone wrong. And there are some things that have definitely gone wrong. We are now joined by uh, Georgia um, Lambert, and we're going to raise the level of the conversation but before we get to that, before we delve into the metaphysics of the Constitution, because remember, there's that bizarre dream that Washington had, which I know I've had historians on to say, oh, that's just, you know, poppycock. It was uh, someone much later. But there seems to me to be something prescient about Washington's dream, which basically said, uh, in terms of the telling of the story, that when he was at Valley Forge, he had this incredible vision of a period when the United States of America would face a black dawn, a horrible, incredibly dangerous and threatening period where the fate of the entire republic hung in the balance. And frankly, we seem to be in that time now because it's, it's, it's this fall, it's this midterm where everything is riding on voters making the right decision. So with that as backdrop, let me, let me uh, you know, kind of lay out this, this question. Um, as I read the Constitution way back when, the, premise, the supremacy of the Supreme Court in terms of validating legislation and executive branch actions was not codified in the Constitution. It was martial or was it Tawny? I forget which one. Who basically Marshall. Said, Marshall. Who basically said, "Nope, to have the last word." How the hell, under a constitutional republic, was the court able to usurp such an extraordinary overriding right, where now the court can decide on hundred-year-old legislation, which is obviously in the people's interest, and basically say, as in this New York decision, "Oops, we made a mistake." Oh boy, <laughs> we have time. That, Long form radio. Yes, I, I, I know. I know. We 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 have time. Uh, you should be a pitcher, Richard. <laughs> Would you like my change up? You, you, yeah. You 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 do not throw room service fastballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, uh, the, this uh, the judicial review was. Uh, 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 discussed in the Federalist Papers. Hamilton uh, went in into it uh, uh, quite a bit in, in the uh, in the Federalist Papers, and the the whole uh, 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 premise of it was that it was not that the uh, the judges themselves or the judiciary was uh, supreme, because of course it's uh, 
co-equal, coordinate branches of government, uh, legislative, executive, and uh, the judiciary. But the the idea was that the uh, uh, judges act as essentially, uh, uh, again, going back to the the, uh, uh, baseball metaphor, uh, as, as umpires. They keep every uh, one in the political branches within uh, bounds of the uh, Constitution. Okay. So how did the now Supreme the first Court, time how how did the Supreme Court become? Because I understand it was kind of like an arbitrary decision by Marshall, and thank you for correcting me. Um, that he just basically said, "Okay, this is this is our purview," and it wasn't really ever challenged after that. Well, again, first I want to emphasize that it, it it was foreshadowed in the in the Federalist Papers by by Hamilton, and the first time uh, that the Supreme Court uh, exercised judicial review to o- overturn a, a portion of a statute was by Chief Justice John Marshall and the court in uh, Marbury versus Madison. But what was what was his a what was his proposition that we have the right as a court to do this and b why did the other two branches accede to that because that's really the ultimate power if you can declare a law null and void that's like you know game set match or checkmate right to a certain extent yes then how did he get away with it well, and Chief I'll, Justice Marshall uh, was successful. I'm, I'm not going to characterize it, anything that the greatest Chief Justice said as, quote, getting away with it, unquote. Well, that's my job. He, he, that's my job. Right. Okay. Right. He, he, he was uh, successful because he would go back with, to that same word again. He, he, was, he was thoughtful in what he did. And that it stands in uh, stark contrast to what we have seen coming from the court uh, recently. So wait a minute. You're saying that he made such a good case for judicial review that the leadership of the other two branches of the time basically said, Justice Marshall, you won us over. You are correct. And so it's not enshrined in codified law or the Constitution or an amendment, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically accepted as a way we just – a norm, the, the way we do business, which means that if a current president were to say to the court, actually, you don't have the authority legally to do that, where would we be? Well, we would uh, be in quite a situation. Uh, what I started to say before uh, we went to that last break about uh, this particular court and uh, some of its most recent rulings has gone, continuing the baseball metaphor, has really gone out in left field. 
uh, to such an extent that it may be necessary for the president of the United States to challenge him. And what I meant by that was not that, uh, uh, so much the whole idea of judicial review, but just to point out to the public when somebody – well, not just somebody, but these particular uh, uh, justices on the court are saying things that are demonstrably false – such as I'm, I'm right now, I'm, what I'm going back to in, in my mind is the most uh, that, that uh, New York decision overturning a, a 100-year-old uh, gun safety statute by just common sense making up something and saying, "Oh, uh, uh, they, they cannot do that because of the Second Amendment." And, and Richard, let, let me just comment on, on the Second Amendment again because this is something that just annoys me having read what, what uh, Hamilton went into great detail in, in number 29 of the Federalist Papers, defining a, a well-regulated militia. And as you know, a well-regulated militia is the opening phrase of the Second Amendment. Now, there was a time when the uh, NRA, they used to have an office on 16th Street in uh, the federal city in Washington, D.C., and they had a plaque on it. They, they've moved since then. I think they moved over into Arlington or, or Crystal City on the other side of the river. But they, they used to have a plaque, and I'm sure they still have the same plaque, where it will say, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, see, that is not quoting the amendment. No, it's right? forgetting the preamble. Because, be, right, because what the amendment actually says, it says a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary uh, to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Now, let's forget all of this discussion uh, uh, about uh, uh, case law and, and everything else, right? Let's just go back to diagramming a sentence. And <laughs> Mr. Layman, Ms. White, Ms. Land, I was paying attention in class, <laughs> right? Now, I, Richard, I, I hated diagramming. Ah, anyway. Right, right. But Richard... If I said, I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith. Notice I pause, mm-hmm. right? Which is the where the comma. Leg, which is where the comma. Right. Exactly. The wooden leg is not named Smith. I'm referring to the man. That's that is what again uh, to those former teachers. I was paying attention. Mm-hmm. That is what is called an appositive, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it goes into greater description about the subject. In the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia is the subject, a well-regulated militia, comma, right? So let's just eliminate the apposite where it goes into greater description referring back to the subject, right? Right. So I know a man named Smith. For the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia shall not be infringed. 
Bingo. 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 Yes. Right. So and how see, come that, it's been so twisted, and is it only the political and economic power of the NRA, which goes back to World War II? When you see some of these old movies on on the Turner Movie Channel, it'll say sponsored by the NRA, the National Rifle, which was an incredibly important patriotic organization back then that believed in the Constitution and believed in the correct reading. When did it go off the rails and and the country with it? Came came much much later. Uh, I know it really went way off when uh, that fellow Wayne Lapierre became the whatever his title. Oh, the is guy that buys the three thousand dollars suits. Right, right, and has to walk on a, a a beach that has what was it, pink sand or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But yeah, so we're talking was, fundamental uh, personal corruption and lack of character. And and virtue. Yes, yes. So how do we get it back? Well, we get it back. I, I guess partly through uh, having people, and I'm thinking of someone uh, you should have on your show to talk about this, because I quoted him in a piece I, I wrote uh, back in what 2013. Uh, the piece is much as required, and it is about the Second Amendment. The fellow that uh, one of the sources I used was uh, Professor uh, Saul uh, Cornell. He wrote a, a, a book uh, called, interestingly enough, A Well-Regulated Militia. <laughs> How come and they're he, dropping that? That seems to me that is like you know saying that night is day and day is night. Because anybody oh, yes. reading anybody reading it says obviously that's the state militia slash national guard. It isn't right. some kid in Nivaldi, Texas, who just has this incredible evil bent because he's been basically you know abused all his life, and when he gets to be legal age, he goes out and buys weaponry to destroy his fourth grade classrooms. Literally, vengeance is not mine, saith the Lord, and nobody thinks. On the Republican side, that is radically wrong. Right. Right. Well, see, once again, this is something that uh, the one party that uh, is interested in having a, a republic needs to emphasize that, that they just need because they are people who have the privilege of getting on the airwaves on a regular basis, and they need to do, take a page out of the Republican uh, playbook. How many times have you seen them go on TV? The reporter will say, uh, she will say, uh, oh, how, how was the uh, uh, weather today on your vacation? And he will go and, and talk about their, their tax bill or, or something, right? You, you know what they do. Right? Yeah, it's called changing the subject. <laughs> right, right. So what, what, what I would like to see uh, the Democratic senators and representatives do when a reporter asks a question about a particular thing, and they say, well, uh, 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 Mr. or Mrs. Uh, uh, so-and-so, as the case may be, uh, I will answer your question. But first, I-, I want to talk about what the Second Amendment actually means in light of the recent ruling. And it just takes a, 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 sh- a short paragraph to explain this is what it actually means. Now, in regard to, to your question about the tax bill, uh, this is why uh, Senator so-and-so uh, proposed thus and such, and I support 
her uh, 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 amendment. Okay, back to uh, Marshall. If, yes. if President Biden were basically, I mean, he's come close because another thing that we thought growing up, I thought uh, that made us so different than Germany or the Soviet Union or China was the idea that we could travel freely between any state in the union and we never had to show our papers. There was literally, I forget how many state legislatures after the Dobbs decision are trying to enact laws where they forbid women from crossing state lines, like from Indiana to, to, to Kansas, to get an abortion by basically forbidding them from travel and making it illegal to where Biden has to sign an executive order. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. And no one is saying we have reached the end of the line. Something radical to confront the radicals has to be done. So when does the president say to the court, you have overstepped the bounds of your authority under the Constitution? Can he say that? Oh, yes, yes. Because first of all, part of the president's job is, according to the Constitution, it says he, he shall give to the Congress from time to time information on, uh, on the State of the Union. So a perfect opportunity, from my point of view, would be it during the, the State of the Union address. Right? Well, because this you... is this is a major uh, a topic. And furthermore, the Constitution also says that the uh, president uh, may send to the Congress such me- messages as he shall consider, uh, quote, necessary and expedient. Well, this is certainly one of those things. And th- this would not be a personal attack on specific uh, uh, judges on the court. This would be an attack on their reasoning, right? Because one of the things that uh, uh, Hamilton uh, pointed out in uh, the papers that he wrote about the judiciary in the uh, Federalist Papers is that the uh, judiciary is the uh, uh, by by nature the, the weakest of the uh, three branches because the legislature controls the purse strings, the executive uh, controls the uh, swords, uh, referring to uh, enforcing the laws. But what the, what it is necessary for the judiciary to do is to have deceit, uh, decisions that are based on reason, not on making things up. And we are now at the point where they are actually just making things up and, and saying that it is okay because we have on black robes. So again, going back to the founders and the creation of this extraordinary document, and when I bring Georgia on momentarily, I want to talk about you know, Washington's dream, which I've been told is apocryphal. And frankly, it's so right on the money where we are now that I, I'm wondering about, is it apocryphal? Did it really happen? Has it been submerged in history because it hit too close to the mark too soon? Is the idea that the court has unbridled domination over the other two branches under a government that ostensibly you have three equal branches? Well, there's no pushback on this insane court that basically says one day to women, you're not real citizens. You're not real human beings anymore. You are chattel. 
You are the property of the government, and we will tell you down to 10-year-old girls that you must have a baby to full term, which, of course, would kill probably the 10-year-old girl. So where did we go off the the rails so radically that there's no pushback by either other branch that the court has exceeded its authority? Well, the change change really came in had judges appointed to the, the, the court that from my point of view, are not uh, uh, judges, but uh, ideologues. And yeah, but you can't legislate so against ideology. You have to outflank it. You have, in other words, back to checks and balances. And although I'm saying something radical, like Biden should just refuse to accept the court's decision in this case and see what happens, the actual practical way is for having enough senators, Democrats in the Senate, and in the House, so that they basically can expand the court, the president can sign it, and you submerge the radicals in a sea of normalcy that actually returns to thoughtful thinking about the fundamentals of the Constitution. Yes, yes. And also to go back to uh, President of the United States can use the State of the Union address to attack the reasoning of the court. They do not make this uh, something personal. To you, attack, do you their, remember to, uh, sorry to, to, to attack their, their reasoning? Sorry to interrupt, but we don't have a lot of time. So That's I want right. to get Go a ahead. couple Go things ahead. in. Okay. You remember back when Obama was first elected, which I think was an incredible benchmark in this society. That's where things really began to go off the rails because of the vitriolic, basically racist reaction to the election mm-hmm. of the first black American president. I think we really exposed the horrible underbelly of what's been going on was his key election. Remember how he gave a State of the Union and he very gently kind of reprimanded the court and there was a close-up of Alito and he was vigorously shaking his head like, oh my God, someone's impugning the nine princes because I don't know whether there was, well, Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court then the nine princes and princesses because the president chose to speak ill of a decision. It was astonishing Mm -hmm. that they reacted so viscerally. So why aren't they reacting positively now that their overall approbation is down to 25% based on their own actions? Look at, look at what Clarence Thomas has been getting away with and his wife, Martha, good grief. And there is no, review of the court in terms of integrity and and rules and regulations other than the court you know where did the founders fall down in terms of checks and balances for the court well uh, by my saying that the, the, the president of the united states can use the state of the union address to lay out the case to the american people right again on the basis of challenging their there, I will say, so-called reasoning, because making up stuff is, is not actually reason, nope. right? And, and I am saying that because that would start laying the groundwork for the, uh, uh, the impeachment of certain 
uh, justices on the court. Oh, now, Thomas, granted, Thomas is, should definitely be impeached. No question. Yeah, yeah, but he won't right. be under the current political paradigm. No, but, but I'm saying the, the way to change uh, uh, the paradigm is to challenge it. Right? You do not let people continue to think, again, on the basis of assertion and repetition that something is true. Challenge it. So it's easy to follow, lay out uh, uh, one, two, three, A, B, C, lay, lay it out for the public so that it is understood this is nothing personal. And they can see, you can say, compare and contrast. Uh, uh, this and, and that, do a before and after. Well, we have uh, an example and, right in front of us, which is this, you know, in a, in, a, in a country where government seems to be stuck, not even in second gear like the song, but in nothing, and and nobody can get satisfaction for real progress on fundamental human issues of being a citizen and economic redress, et cetera, et cetera. The one part of Congress which has been functioning brilliantly because it's been laying out the truth out of the very mouths of the participants, the witnesses, has been the January 6th committee. And what they've been doing brilliantly is to condition the body politic with information, with basically the number one government television show closing off its first season you know, a few weeks ago, <laughs> entering the second season in September by giving the people a background to why the president, President Donald J. Trump, needs to be, as any other citizen, held accountable for his actions under the Constitution. They have, as the lawyers say, laid, and done it brilliantly, they've laid foundation. So you're saying that the president in the State of the Union needs to make the case in this next State of the Union, which is not going to be now until you know next year, for why the court must be challenged and expanded in consonance with the, the will of the citizens of the United States. Yes. Super. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to give an intro that I hope will be appropriate to George Lambert because I want to raise the level of the conversation. I don't think it's an accident that all of these huge societal and legal conditions are hitting the fan all at once. If you've been following this show and some of my reasoning over the years, I think that what we're seeing is a very important and consciousness which has made this a time of choosing. And the only question is, what kind of future for the Republic are we going to choose? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and on that pregnant question, which hopefully we will get into when we return, we shall return. And there I see a little kick, it's hit, we're made of leather, they knock the boat with little sticks. To call the men together, yes, the doodle keep it up, yes, the doodle dab the other side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this now Sunday night um, here in the Land of Enchantment, greeting from Saturday. Here on the other side of midnight, my guest this morning is Citizen Historian, and he gives Citizen Historians a very good name, Marvin D. Jones. Not to be confused with other Marvin Jones who does something, I think he plays uh, football. Anyway, we're going to bring on Georgia. Georgia Lambert is our resident metaphysician. She worked for over a decade with Manley Hall at that major institution in Los Angeles, which was devoted back in the 40s and 50s and 60s to interesting philosophical musings and connotations and publications. And what I've been wanting to talk with Georgia about all evening is the idea that I got way back when I was reading about American history and reading about the Constitution and the founders and Washington and Jefferson and Madison, that there was something different about this extraordinary nation, this, this uh, uh, grand you know, experiment in, in Republican government where people actually get to a degree never seen before in any history, uh, a modicum of control over their own lives and that as Martin Luther King said, over the long term, you know, um, justice bends toward reality or reality bends toward justice so that things have been getting better over a long period of time with vicissitudes and, you know, two steps backwards sometime and one step forward. But overall, there's been a progression of liberalization of human rights under this republic up until just a few weeks ago, when suddenly that trend curve came to a stunning, screeching halt. And in other conversations, I've had this discussion with uh, Georgia that this is not accidental. This is a time metaphysically, and by that I mean where the physics itself, the hyperdimensional model, is mandating that consciousness basically grapple with such fundamental decisions that will affect the next 26,000 years, if you can imagine such a thing, that now is the time when we're being presented with all these choices. So with that as backdrop, Georgia, what do you think? (laughs) Good evening. Good evening. (laughs) Nice to be with you. Um, A 
couple of things before we get way out there. Uh, I've been listening to the conversation, and um, uh, there's, there's two areas that I'd like to comment on. Uh, number one is the discussion on the Supreme Court and expanding the Supreme Court. Uh, expanding the Supreme Court doesn't um, preclude more ideologues, but term limits would. Uh, okay, let, let me go to Marvin. Where did the idea become enshrined, Marvin, that justices of the court are elected for life? Was that in the Constitution, or is it by legislative fiat at some later time? Well, that um, I know the politicians and the, and the press says that judges serve for life. The actual language in the Constitution it, uh, says that they serve, quote, during good behavior it, it is the actual what? term. There's nothing about yeah. lifetime terms? No, it, it says they serve during good behavior, which is the reason why uh, in the, in the uh, last uh, segment we were talking about the necessity of the President of the United States going before a joint session of Congress and pointing out to uh, the, the, the public the faulty There's bad behavior. Well, we just point out they're bad. Said, that it, make well, the case. But, but see, then we come down to a definition of terms. How do you define good? Who decides good? Who is the ultimate authority on a justice serving not a lifetime term, but until he basically makes a stupid, idiotic mistake and or a deliberate, deceitful falsehood against the Constitution? Well, it starts uh, with impeachment starts in the House of Representatives. Oh. So, so that so is again, where we're I'm starting. Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. We don't have a lot of time. The obvious dumb question is, why has none of those 435 House members mentioned this as a way to check the court? If it says nothing about how did they get to lifetime terms? Well, Gee, I'm glad I brought this up. Oh, I'm sure glad you did. <laughs> See, I've been assuming uh, hi, that they George, I just want to say hello. <laughs> lovely to meet you, Marvin. I've been assuming, obviously erroneously, that because it's all been said, lifetime terms, lifetime terms, that somehow that was encoded in the Constitution. No, I've not read the Constitution for a very long time. But if it says nothing about lifetime terms, how the hell do we get into lifetime appointments? Well, the the whole idea again that uh, uh, Hamilton uh, go, goes into this. Since the judiciary, by its nature, would be the uh, weakest branch, because again, uh, the legislature controls the purse strings, the executive uh, uh, controls the sword, the the, the army, yes. Right, uh, uh, or just regular prosecutors and, and, and so on. Uh, the, the, the thought was that as long as uh, the, the judges are con- conducting themselves properly, they, they should be allowed to ser- serve. And, and Hamilton goes into how uh, in a, a republic he says that the laws be- become so uh, voluminous that it really takes quite a while for somebody to 
become familiar uh, 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 with them. And just to protect the, the judges from the uh, two political branches, it should not be on a, a, a whim that, that a judge could be tossed out of office because one method of removing judges that was deliberately not chosen by the framers, what is, what is called a joint address, where uh, the president would go before for Congress and say, oh, this, this judge, uh, uh, she made this or that decision, and she just has to go. And it would just be a majority vote by both the Senate and the House. I- impeachment begins in the House of Representatives by a majority of vote, and then the trial would be in the Senate. And uh, to with, remove, with two-thirds. Right, with two-thirds, yes, sir. So how come we got lifetime appointments? Are you deflecting? I'm asking you very No, I'm not. I'm not defe- <laughs> uh, that, that, that could, oh, are you talking to me or to Georgia? No, I'm talking to you, and I'm being kind of facetious. But somewhere oh. along the line, good behavior got translated in until I dropped dead. Yes. How? It, 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 well, and when? Say as, 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 well, in effect, as, as, in effect, as opposed to what the language is, in effect, as, as long as someone, a, a judge, was con- conducting oneself properly, that would be, the service would, would continue during good behavior. What, what has happened is there has not been a regular practice of reviewing the conduct of judges. Uh, Glenn Kirshner, on his, uh, he, he has something he does on YouTube called Justice Matters, and he has uh, proposed, uh, again, uh, you will like this idea, of citizens going around to the various courts and literally keeping tabs on the, the, oh, the judges. I am, and, and oh, what very, a great idea. I'm in so in favor right, uh, of the jury system. I mean, look what a jury in Texas did to Alex Jones the other day, twice, unanimously. Juries are the bedrock. It goes back to the idea that it was only when the Constitution got back to the states and the citizens got a chance to read it in their local rag that somebody says, wait a minute, you're missing all these rights. So citizens, juries, oh, what a great idea, because there's no review beyond currently in political discussion. The court, they're the final arbiter of their own verisimilitude and good behavior. We just need uh, those who are in office to take advantage of the privilege of of getting on the airwaves and pointing out certain things to the public. Why and aren't these things the, being discussed? Georgia, back to you. Well, what hopefully tonight we will it, it, uh, start a movement to encourage certain things, such as I've, I have I've made it clear that this court has gone so far out in left field. No, right that, field, right field, way right okay. field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, way beyond the cheap seats, as we used to say. Way beyond that, them, yes. Right. 
uh, that once again emphasize uh, the, the president of the United States in the State of the Union address can make the case not against them personally, but against their reasoning in specific cases and just go one, one, two, three, ABC. And it, it, and they give one uh, things on a silver platter to, to point out uh, how off base they are. Take, take the opportunity. So all it takes ultimately is that incredibly rare commodity Political courage. God, yes. what a concept. Yes. Georgia, are, is, <laughs> yes. Is, is, is your technology working? Can you join us again? I think so. Can there you, you are. There you are, yes. Crystal, okay, good. Crystal clear. See what you Yay. started? I keep I inviting the troublemakers on. <laughs> Why don't I ever learn? What, a, what an exquisite uh, question. Keep going. <laughs> the other thing is a uh, comment on the... Uh, the subject of the fairness doctrine and how we got so far away from that. You actually answered that early on in the broadcast when you talked about civics being dropped from school. Because what that did was it left all education in schools to the personality. In other words, uh, preparing for personal development and personal job training. There is no training in our young life for our participation in a greater society or a greater life. It's all personal. Or that you educate yeah. yourself as a generalist so you understand life itself. It's all exactly. about getting a job, getting a good exactly. job, getting a better exactly. job. And even, even college is, is a trade school very often. Well, given that education is supposedly um, at a local level, back to Tip O'Neill, and individual school boards, which, of course, the radical right is trying to undermine at every turn now, how would we correct this? Because when they drop civics, you know, when we never got to see how a bill becomes a law again, um, I felt we'd lost something, but I had no idea how desperately daggerish that dropping of that was. Again, it has to do with identity, and, and the, the focus should be the one and the many, the individual and the, the, the greater society, not an either or. And because it's not an and, uh, the whole weight of, of education was thrown to the individual. Then, in our Internet days, this was amplified because before the internet, everybody had a shared experience with TV. There were a few channels you could choose between a doctor show or a Western show, but the news was the news. Remember Peter, remember, everybody, remember Peter Jennings' famous line, the networks are the national campfire? There you go. We have and, no national campfires have, anymore. That's right. Everybody is segmented off with their own media and their own little bubble, and they don't get exposed to anything else. Remember Mark Twain's famous uh, (laughs) quote about travel being the enemy of prejudice, but it can also mean mental travel. Mm. When there's no mental travel, there's prejudice and sectarianism, a fracturing of our experience. Well, so I I try with this show to be 
Go ahead. The fairness doctrine, the fairness doctrine you know, um, people didn't miss it because they were fractured and forgot that we're supposed to be looking at the whole picture and everybody's point of view. Marvin, do you know whether, I mean, we have something called the Department of Education. Do you know whether in law, the Department of Education in a society which is religiously, and I don't use that word lightly, obsessively compulsive about local control of education boards and all that, and we're seeing it in Youngkin's election, and we're seeing it in Florida, and we're seeing it in California, would, would there be a, any kind of a legal foundation for a national congressional presidential signed bill that basically mandated civics, how the individual relates to the society and to the planet has to be in some curriculum at some level at all levels of, of uh, schooling. Would that be constitutional? Oh, boy. That would probably be something challenged, I am sure, since it has been so ingrained that everything is done locally. Well, that's, that, that's the kind of words, but the actions don't follow the words. Look at the right, which is organizing, and they bragged about organizing takeover of local boards at a national level by simply the radical right of the Republican Party. I think one, as I'm thinking about this in real time, it's mm-hmm. possible you could tie this to federal funding because a lot of other things like Kennedy and Webb mm-hmm. made civil rights mandatory in the South with the creation of NASA by funding right. all those centers through federal contracts. And under law, they had to hire blacks and whites and Latinos, although there were not many Latinos back then that were recognized, they had to hire them equally under a federal law because the money came from the Fed. So if you tied civics to federal subsidy of local education, could you make it stick? Yeah, yeah, that that would be that would be a possibility, and also. Uh, if I may go back to something that we're talking about uh, early on at the beginning of, of the program, that report that President Washington had, Secretary of War Henry Knox in the Congress in support of universal national service, mm-hmm. it was about more than an order of battle. I am going to quote uh, uh, what Knox says. If the United States possessed the vigor of mind to establish the first institution, referring to universal national service, it may reasonably be expected to produce the most unequivocal advantages. A glorious national spirit will be introduced with its extensive train of political consequences. The youth will imbibe of a love of their country reverence and obedience to its laws, courage and elevation of mind, openness and liberality of character, accompanied by a just spirit of honor. In addition to which their bodies will acquire a robustness greatly conducive to their personal happiness as well as the defense of their country, while habit 
with its silent but efficacious operation will durably submit uh, submit the system. So this idea of uh, national service, I think, is also a way of getting at the same thing because as, as Georgia was was pointing out about thinking more about me, 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 or, or my little group here, my little group there. What it says in the Constitution, one of the re- and uh, in the uh, uh, preamble, one of the reasons why it was written, it says to promote the general welfare, mm. not this guy, that guy. Uh, 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 you and George are my buddies, so I'm going to appropriate all the money for for you guys and the heck with everybody else. No, to promote the general welfare. There have been a couple of examples in American history that come to my mind. One was. Roosevelt's Conservation Corps, or the or the mm-hmm, WPA, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to basically try to combat the grassroots effects of the Incredible Depression. The other was when John Kennedy and and uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Sergeant Shriver created the Peace Corps, which had right. people from all levels volunteering, being paid a modicum, but experiencing other people, other culture other laws, other traditions, other mythologies, other everything. Mm-hmm. If, was Knox limiting his, uh, his vision only to military service? Because to me, if you could somehow encode in law a period of national service doing something beyond yourself and being paid yes. at some modicum for that, but having that experience of shared communal having to rub shoulders with blacks and Chicanos and Latinos and Hungarians and Russians. And in other words, the idea that we're on a planet, it seems to me that the whole climate legislation of this uh, Reconstruction Act, uh, sorry, not Reconstruction, but Inflation uh, Prevention Act, uh, reduction, I'm sorry, um, would be an avenue where as part of the almost 400 billion in the technology areas, if there was some way that you could entrain young people into service for the planet, as opposed to just the nation, but you could see how what's being done technically and politically impacts the whole on the planet that we're all gonna live on or die on, that would be a way to inject this into the current political discussion. It would have to be, it would have to be something like that because so far we have nothing that gets our attention off of self into the greater life. How can we make decisions about the greater life and the health of the planet if we have no basis for understanding it? Which segues perfectly into what I want to spend the last few minutes talking about, which is, am I right, Georgia? Is this a special time in this special experiment where we are supposed to come up with special solutions because if we implement them now, they will stick like they never could have stuck before. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record here because I say this every time you ask me on. Um, But the idea is that we are at a time of choosing and we are choosing the kind of people that we want to be 
and the kind of nation that we want to be. And going back to your reference to Washington's vision, whether it's uh, a true thing or not, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, a good metaphor and a good mythology. Remember, just because something's a myth doesn't mean it isn't true. No. <laughs> um, the, the vision of going through a dark time, uh, yes, it was a dark time, but we got through it. And so that's the hope of that vision, that we do get through this period of choosing and, uh, and we choose the opening that is possible uh, over the next few years, um, certainly within our lifetimes. Um, we, we get a chance to, to move up a notch if we can take it. Okay, let's tackle the last couple of minutes here. Actually, we have maybe four minutes. Marvin, you served in participatory government. You've obviously been an advisor. You've been delegates. You've been working in the vineyards, actually, with a, with a job with government. How important do you view this midterm election in terms of deciding the literal state of this republic? Oh, it, it is extremely important. Uh, and I, I believe that the, the Democrats have an opportunity to defy, as the press has been pointing out over and over again, that uh, usually the party in control of the White House loses seats. But I believe that they have an opportunity to uh, retain both the House and the Senate. They just have to make the case to the American people. Okay, which brings me to the question, how come the Republicans are so good at doing this and the Democrats are so damn dumb? That is a good question. Maybe part of that is related to since the Republicans are interested in business, they they are good at advertising. But in this instance, the Republicans have a product that no one wants to buy, right? Uh, uh, McConnell was saying a, a few months ago that they are not going to, to present the uh, American people with any kind of, of platform. A and, legislative agenda. Uh, right, right. And you've got uh, Senator Ron Johnson of, uh, where is he from? I believe Wisconsin. Wisconsin, where he, Wisconsin. Yeah, he, he's talking about wanting to get rid of Social Security and, and Medicare, right? And then they're, they're, oh, that'll they're not... Be, that'll be popular. Oh, of course. <laughs> so... so uh, uh, the Democrats need to take advantage of these openings and point out this guy wants to get, get rid of things that support your, your, your grandma. Huh? Just, just take advantage of the opening and, and pound on it over and over again. And But all of this has to be in the larger context of we, we have to keep the republic. We go back to uh, what's on your banner tonight, right? A lot, a lot of people have sacrificed uh, for this. And one of the things that most disgusted me about the uh, chief trader, I believe it was the day after he was installed, he went over to CIA headquarters and stood in front of the, the wall, and he was just spouting off a whole bunch of nonsense. The wall with stars on it. Yeah, yeah. Each one of those stars stands for a CIA officer who died in the service of the United States of America. 
and 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 who must remain mm-hmm. anonymous to protect the other exactly. members of the service. Exactly. Exactly. And I explained to some ladies on the, the bus that, that following Monday, because you see the same people on the bus, become friends with people. And, I, and they were asking me what I thought. I said, I do not want to be rude, impolite, whatnot, but I can only dis- describe this, how this strikes those of us who do the country's uh, dirty work, whether it's armed force, intelligence community, diplomatic corps. Right? That was the equivalent of somebody going over to Arlington National Cemetery and urinating on our graves. Yeah. It, it was just totally disgusting. And nobody and he, said anything at the time. Into people. There was no pushback. No, there was no outrage. There was no, even if you're president, how dare you do this? It's like voting against, you know, health benefits for veterans who've given the last full measure of, of uh, devotion. Right, right. Well, guys, I hate to say this, but we're basically out of time. I want to thank my guest this evening, Marvin D. Jones. Um, Marvin, with your permission, I'm going to have you come back. I think what I want to do is as things are basically hitting the rotating kitchen appliance, as they're going to do in the next few months, I think I'd like to have some commentary based on your historical reading, research, and experience of how current times relate to ancient times, at least in terms of most people's memories. Uh, Georgia, obviously, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you for insights and your question about the court. Amazing what happens when you have a free conversation. So tomorrow night, we're rerunning one of my shows from a few weeks ago because my guest couldn't make it. But the following weekend, we're going to have some surprises for you. And guess what? They're going to be related to what's happening on Mars. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left. Until morning. Good night, everyone. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.